I wanted to talk about not so much the resurrection. Um, I will obviously talk about that some. But I particularly wanted to talk about some of the trials that Jesus had to go through. Um, And I don't mean trials in the sense of difficulties. Though we are going to talk about the difficulties involved with these. But I mean the literal trials of Jesus when he was brought before some sort of judgment or council or ruler and he had to be put on trial, so to speak. Um, I I passed these out. I hope everybody is able to see one. I have one extra if anyone needs one. Uh, It's a little half sheet that will help you kind of follow along with these trials. It details out the number of them when they happened, and kind of the gist of them, so to speak, in bullet points. Um, But you'll notice that if you have a half sheet, uh, there were six trials that Jesus went through before actually being nailed to the cross. Um, Now, you can quibble with how these are numbered out, because if you look at the list, Pontius Pilate appears twice. You could say that was kind of one trial, but Jesus went before him two different times. And so I would say that there are, there are six kind of trials. And I want to, I don't think this lesson is going to be anything uh, super in-depth. I think you kind of have the bullet points of the lesson on the half sheet. I mostly just kind of wanted to look at each of these. You have verses on here. I'm going to zero in on kind of one section of verses for each trial. I would like to read them and highlight, as it says on this sheet the injustices Jesus faced in every trial that he went through. Now imagine you're Jesus, and I know that's a weird thing to imagine, but just imagine you're Jesus, um, and everything that led up to the trial, the trials, I guess, um, you drew near to Jerusalem, right? You've been, you've been ministering for three, three and a half years, among uh, the Israelites, among some Samaritans, among some uh, Roman Galileans, those types. And you finally know your time is drawing near, right? The purpose for which you've been sent to be the great sacrifice for the world, right? And so you you start heading back towards Jerusalem and you get there. uh, In John 11, verse 53, it says that Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem for his, what we know to be final week. This would have been on a Saturday that he finally approached Jerusalem. And the Jews began plotting for his death. We know that from John eleven fifty three. As soon as he gets near to Jerusalem, that begins to kind of take shape. And that's a Saturday. Right? And we know Jesus spent the whole week, Saturday kind of through Thursday-ish, being prepared and preparing others for his death. So he gets near to Jerusalem. Saturday rolls by, Sunday rolls by, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and every uh, moment from John, uh, at the end of John 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, is Jesus talking about his death, preparing himself for it, talking to other people about him going to the Father and how there's going to be difficulties for them coming right around the corner. And on Monday... After Jesus is drawn near to Jerusalem on Saturday, Monday is the 10th of Nisan or Nisan, however you say that, the Jewish calendar, when the Passover lambs would have been selected and Jesus enters into Jerusalem fittingly as the great Passover lamb, right? 
And, you know, you can imagine the Israelite families in Jerusalem selecting the lamb, you know, going by the law, picking one without spot or blemish. And, and, and Jesus has that moment where he comes into Jerusalem with the palm fronds being laid down and everybody's singing his praises and quoting of psalms are happening and all this great stuff. Jesus enters in and that's that's on a Monday. Matthew 21 tells us that. Fast forward a couple days to Wednesday, and Jesus declared he would die two days later. Matthew 26, verse 2. And, almost in the same breath, in the background, uh, to no other apostle or disciple's knowledge, Judas is making a deal to do just that. Uh, in verses 14 through 16 of Matthew 26. So Thursday rolls around. It's Passover. Um, it's when Passover would have been prepared and eaten in the evening time. And so in Matthew 26, verses 20 through 30, Jesus does just that with his own disciples. But we as Christians know he kind of imparts an, a new full meaning to this. And he talks about how that meal represented his blood and his body, right? And again, it evokes this idea that he had come into Jerusalem as the great Passover meal himself, right? The great Passover lamb. And so that's happening on Thursday. Uh, verses 30 through 35 of Matthew 26 detail that out. And of course, Jesus, after that meal, goes to the garden and he prays not only for his own behalf, but the behalf of his disciples. And then Judas leads the, the officers, the soldiers, the chief priests, Pharisees towards Jesus to actually arrest him. So those are the, the events that bring us to Thursday evening, as it were, of, of the last week in Jesus's uh, pre-crucifixion life, right? Um, he arrived on Saturday and he's arrested, so to speak, on Thursday. And if you look at the half sheet, you'll notice that three of, or two of these trials, excuse me, two of these trials that Jesus faces occur Thursday night. With the other four coming Friday morning. It's almost an even split. You'll notice that on the left-hand side of the sheet, you have Jewish or religious trials. And then you have what would have been Roman and civil trials. The first two of the six are on Thursday night, and they're religious trials. The Sanhedrin follow up very early in the morning, and then he's sent on his way to what would have been the Roman trial, the civil trial. Um, there's a couple things that I want to say about Jewish trials, and there's a couple things I want to say about Roman trials at the right time. But first, with the Jewish trials, there are several... Uh, illegalities is that how you say that illegalities illegal things involved with these trials from the perspective of jewish law and what i mean by that is certainly not jesus doing anything illegal but the way the trials were conducted by religious officials they had done it illegally even according to their own expectations or standards now some of these uh scholars would kind of debate or talk about maybe the extent to which these are true but I'm going to offer them to you um, for your own examination. First of all, no trial was to be held during a feast time. Now, I would say this. Many of these illegalities are determined based on what we know from Jewish tradition and law 
from about the second century AD. That's about as far back as we have concrete evidence of these things. But people that are much more knowledgeable in history, in that particular kind of history than me, uh, have determined that it was very likely that they didn't begin in 200 AD. That's just the oldest records of them that we have. It was probable that they were long before that exercised. And so it's likely that it was a typical thing not to have trials, religious Jewish trials, during feast times. Which, of course, we know in Jesus' last week, that's exactly the time he's there in, is a feast time. And so it would have been breaking their own standards, their own traditions to have this during a feast time. Additionally, each member of the court, this religious court, was to vote individually to convict or acquit, but Jesus was convicted by acclamation. We'll talk about that here more in a moment. If the death penalty was given, a night must pass before the sentence was carried out. However, only a few hours passed before Jesus was placed on the cross. So you'll again see that typical, they would kind of, as we say, sleep on it. If they were to make a capital punishment kind of accusation and deliver that, then they would sleep on it. But that didn't happen with Jesus, we'll see. And finally, the accused was to be given counsel or representation, but Jesus had none. Uh, We're familiar with that as Americans. We kind of mimic that in our court system that everybody is able to have representation, right? You'll get a court-appointed representative if you can't afford to supply one yourself. And, of course, Jesus had none of these things. And so I want to talk about this first trial with Annas. You'll see on the sheet that uh, he kind of was in position, I guess is a way to phrase that, from 6 to 15 A.D. or C.E., however you were (laughs) taught growing up to think about that. Um, Former high priest, unofficial. You'll see that on there. I, I have a hard time keeping track of all the religious positions and especially the Roman governing positions that existed in Jesus' day. I don't know why. I like history. I just struggle remembering, keeping track of all that stuff and how they related to one another. But if you want to look in John chapter 18, I think this is going to be helpful for us in uh, understanding this trial. John chapter 18. A man named Annas is uh, described here as when Jesus comes before him. And we'll begin reading in verse 12 of John chapter 18. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. I'm going to insert here. I think that's John's way of saying he followed him. Um, Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not of this uh, one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Right. All right, so in this text we see Annas, who uh, on the sheet, you know, it says a former high priest. And the idea here is that, like, he had been the high priest at a time, but now his, as it were, son-in-law, uh, if I'm remembering that correctly here in this text, um, because he's listed as the father-in-law. His son-in-law is actually acting as high priest now. And in all the reading that I did about this, it seems as if there was still a lot of respect and authority given to this man, Annas, who would have formerly been the high priest, which is perhaps why they bring him to Caiaphas first. It seems as though... This might have been common. It may have been just because of Annas' particular interest in trying Jesus. But maybe this was a common practice to kind of like filter out some cases that um, maybe Caiaphas wouldn't have to deal with everything if his father-in-law could handle some of it. Um, but certainly was not a biblical practice. It was not a practice from the Torah. Um, and so when you see here on the sheet the injustices carried out, you'll notice a few of these. First of all, I listed no jurisdiction. I don't think Annas had any right to try Jesus. As respected as he may have been, even if he was a godly man, he was not the high priest. Um, and so he had no real jurisdiction. You'll notice also it says that he was held at night. This would have been Thursday night immediately after being arrested, kind of in the middle of the night. They take him to Annas. seems like Annas was expecting him. Um, and as I stated earlier, this seems to have been in violation of Jewish law or custom. You don't try someone at night. Um, in fact, daylight and nighttime are like very vivid moral kind of symbols in Jewish culture. And so I don't think Jews thought of doing much righteously at night, right? And so maybe that's what played into this is they didn't typically do that. And fittingly, Jesus was tried at night because this was not a righteous trial, right? Um, you'll notice that there were no witnesses. In fact, Jesus talks about some of the things that he did, right? How he taught in the synagogues and how he had been teaching openly and everybody knew him, right? When they asked, uh, I, he says, I've done nothing in secret, right? Which is kind of in contrast to what's currently happening to him. Um, but you'll notice there was no one to like vouch for him. There were no witnesses to even claim he had done anything wrong. There was no witnesses really on either side. Um, and lastly, you'll see that he's abused in this trial. When he speaks against the question that he's asked by Annas, um, you'll look in verse um, 22 the officers with Jesus struck him and asked him is this how you answer 
this there's nothing about this trial that seems fair um and and that's that's the theme of all of jesus's trials in fact if you want to look at the next trial here um mark chapter 14 mark chapter 14 We'll move fairly quickly um, through these trials from here on out. Um, you'll also notice that none of, only two of these trials are in all four of the gospel accounts. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's both Pontius Pilate, the Roman man who ends up basically sentencing Jesus to death, putting him on a cross. His trial both times is in all four gospels, but the other four trials are either in one or two or maybe three and so we're going to end up kind of having to bounce around a little bit to be able to see all of these. So that's just kind of a side note. But in Mark chapter 14, let's read verses 53 through 65. And look for these injustices that are on the sheet as we read this. Mark 14 verse 53 says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, right, Caiaphas. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build up another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony they didn't agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him him saying to him prophesy and the guards received him with blows so in this trial uh caiaphas is prominent you'll also notice that it mentions a council which we'll talk about here in a moment um, but in this trial with caiaphas who was the acting high priest um, certainly when you read about him in history what is known about him is he was not a godly man um, the romans had a hand in his appointment probably much like annas's um, and certainly that's reflected here because look at all the things that Jesus goes through in this trial. Does this seem like a fair trial to you? It's like a mock mockery of a trial, right? I mean, some of the, these things are the same. Again, this is in Thursday night. This is held at nighttime. What's different than last time when he was before Annas, just before this, there were no witnesses at all in either direction. This time there are witnesses, but they're made up. People are just saying stuff, and it seems like the story's not straight because some people are saying one thing, some people are saying another. They're all negative. They're all trying to create fabrications against Jesus, but their stories don't agree. Right? There's false witnesses. Jesus is, again, abused at trial. It says that the guards, he received blows from the guards. Um, but did you notice that when Caiaphas is trying to like coax some sort of blasphemy out of Jesus— uh, when Jesus finally responds, he like tears his garments. I think that's kind of a strange reaction. Um, I didn't ever really think much about this until kind of working on this lesson. But in Leviticus 21.10, I'll read it. You can just listen to it. If you want to turn, you can. It says this, The priest who is chief among his brothers 
on whose head the anointing oil is poured out and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, the high priest, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. Um, now, there's a lot of reasoning for maybe why that's true, but the bottom line is the priest wasn't supposed to like tear his garment, probably because he had special garments of the Lord, right, that he was wearing. And so God, as is was custom for people when they mourn to tear their clothes, God says, you don't do that when you're wearing the high priestly clothes. You don't tear them up like they're just any old clothes, right? Well, what does the high priest do in this moment in his frustration with Jesus and trying to make a big show? Well, he tears his garments and shows that he has no regard for the laws of God. Uh, look in uh, Mark, or sorry, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We, we saw a little bit of this in our reading just a moment ago with this council that's mentioned, but Jesus ends up going before the Sanhedrin, um, which I'm going to share this with you guys because if you're like me, I struggle to understand some of, the, the, some of these things, what the Sanhedrin are. But in the Torah, God commands Moses to bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people and have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. That's Numbers 11, verse 16. So Moses was to call 70 elders. Uh, and then in Deuteronomy 16, 18, it says, You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So as far as I read, the understanding is that this was basically where the Sanhedrin came from, where these kind of concepts of having judges, having elders, having towns with councils that would make righteous judgments. That was the idea of kind of the Sanhedrin. Now, there's a lot to be said for how far they drifted from that, but that was kind of the idea that the Sanhedrin kind of were born out of. And so the Sanhedrin as a body claimed powers that lesser Jewish courts did not have, as such, they were the only ones who could try the king or extend the boundaries of the temple and of Jerusalem and were the ones to whom all questions of law were finally put, as in they were like the end-all be-all, right? So you think of them as a religious council, think of them sort of like the Supreme Court, right? Like if issues rose and rose and rose, they would come before the Sanhedrin. And so that's who Jesus has brought before. And look at uh, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. When day came, so this is Friday morning, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, the Sanhedrin council, right, gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you'll not believe. And if I ask you, you'll not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. It's my understanding, as I put on the sheet here, that the council needed um, what is called a quorum. Uh, they needed a certain number to kind of make a judgment. And as you can see in this, uh, they kind of just make an acclamation of his guilt. 
There, it doesn't seem to be that there's any like counting of hands. There's no like following of procedure here. It's just kind of like, well, we've all heard it. It's done. Right. And you'll notice here again, there are no more witnesses in this. Uh, moving forward to what are the civil trials, um, the Roman trials. Uh, these were trials before Romans. Uh, and you'll notice that the, the, the claims against Jesus up to this point have been religious in nature, right? Are you the son of God? You said you'd tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, all this kind of stuff. When he goes before Roman judges and rulers, the, the accusations become much more civil in nature. They're not so much religious anymore. Um, and which is fitting because they wouldn't be concerned with religious charges. They would be concerned with political and social ones. Uh, under Roman occupation, Jews were stripped of their self-governance, and consequently their rights to capital punishment were gone, and so Roman trials were necessary to accomplish that. Right? And so they drag him before the Romans. The first Roman that he comes to would have been Pontius Pilate, who was a governor of that region, not of Jerusalem, but of a region. Um, and so they take him before him, and we're going to look at the account in Luke 23. Verses 1 through 7. So let's read this together. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. This is Friday morning again. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, and from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. All right, so the first thing that we notice about Pontius Pilate is that he doesn't actually think Jesus is guilty. The claim is that he's the king of the Jews, which would sound like a civil issue right to a roman governor like hold up this guy's making himself a king like i'm the guy that's supposed to be keeping house in this area i need to sort through this and my understanding of a roman hearing about a possible insurrection or rebellion would be they would respond oftentimes erring on the side of severe like you didn't tolerate any kind of political insurrection or rebellion your job as a Roman, especially a governor or something like that, is you squash that stuff. Doesn't matter how you keep the peace, you just keep the peace, right? And so for Pilate to hear Jesus, to examine him, and to conclude that, eh, this isn't really anything, showed convincingly that Jesus was not a threat to them politically. Like, he wouldn't have messed around if any part of him thought that, that was true, right? And so that brings up another part of the, the injustices is that he actually says he's not guilty. Like the words come out of his mouth, I find no guilt in this man. But the injustice is that he doesn't let him go. The injustice isn't that he acquits him. He just kind of mills around and eventually just kind of tries to pass the buck, right? Um, in fact... There's kind of a false testimony given about Jesus, and that is that he said that he's like this political king when he never said that, right? And so that brings us to Herod Antipas, who was a governor of Galilee. Um, 
who happened to also be in Jerusalem, as we read. Like he must have been attending to some, um, I don't know, some work that he had to do there. There would have been a lot of people in Jerusalem for the Passover, so maybe it was common for governors to kind of come to the area during that to kind of make sure things were going smoothly. But either way, he's he's in Jerusalem, and so Pontius Pilate kind of sends Jesus over to him. And we read that here in the next verse, beginning in 8. And he says this, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been in enmity with each other. All right. So basically, Herod is excited to meet him because he wants to see if he can work some magic trick, which seems to kind of be the impression of this text. Oh, I want to see a sign. When Jesus doesn't uh, cooperate, he just gets, I guess, violent, cruel towards Jesus. He mocks him. He puts him in clothes. And... He's abused, right? Like just this mocking, this mockery is made of him. And he ends up sending him back to Pontius Pilate. One interesting thing about this, um, I've always been sort of sympathetic to Pontius Pilate. The more I kind of read about him, the less sympathetic I become about him. And this is one of the reasons why. He becomes friend, Pontius Pilate becomes a friend with someone he was sort of enemies with because of the mistreatment of Jesus. He thinks it's funny or enjoys it or something. And so they kind of like put aside their differences because they can kind of revel in Jesus being abused. Um, and so another injustice of Jesus, right, in this, this fifth trial. And so he goes back to, to Pontius Pilate. I'm going to read here in Luke 23 again, beginning at verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining before you, behold, I didn't find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Let's continue reading. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pontius Pilate in this this last um, trial, as it were, again, a, a second and a third time states that Jesus is not guilty of anything. I didn't list this as an injustice on here, but you could very easily, and I probably should have, put like that he was punished for having done nothing he says he's not guilty but i'll punish him and then i'll let him go right now ultimately we know that he's never actually let go right? in these these six trials three of which are religious three of which are civil 
governmental. Jesus is never found guilty of any real crime or breaking of a law. He's never given a real trial. It's like mock trials, trials at night with no witnesses or false witnesses. And all along the way, he's been spit on and beat up and lied about, shipped from one person to another. He's been up all night. These trials went all Thursday night after he prayed for a long time. He gets arrested. He gets ferried all night from one trial to the next till in the morning he's before Roman governors and, and leaders. You know he's exhausted. He goes through all of this stuff knowing that it's all just going to lead to him being killed. Right. I think there's a lot of lessons that we learn from this. I think what we talked about last week about perseverance we learn a lesson of that from Jesus enduring all of this mess. Um, so I don't want to overlook that. But I want to focus in on the reading that James offered to us today from Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to turn there, this will be where we finish up. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, because today, you know, Easter is known for thinking about Jesus' resurrection. And today we've been thinking about the six trials that Jesus went through, which led to his crucifixion, which, thank God for this, led to his resurrection, right? Um, but I think it's really important that we think about the trials, we think about the suffering of Jesus, because it makes the resurrection important. It makes it more meaningful, because we lose value of the resurrection if we don't see all this mess that Jesus went through. But in Hebrews chapter 12, I won't read it again, but you'll notice that at the beginning, it, as, he, as this writer speaks to those who have faith in Jesus, right, as a resurrected Lord, they're Christians. He says that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The Christians are, right? And of course, in chapter 11, the witnesses were people all the way back to like Abraham's day. Which is a weird thing to say, like that they would be witnesses to like this 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 journey as a Christian. But that's really what they were. They were people of faith, just as Christians are people of faith. And he says, you know, there's all these witnesses, like a cloud around you, and so because of that, right, that remembrance, that reality, you, you and me, Christians, need to lay aside every weight. And every sin, sin that clings so closely to us. Think about Jesus. He's a perfect model of what this is. Because he put aside everything that could have beset him. He put aside every distraction. right, To be able to endure what he needed to endure. In fact, in Hebrews 12, that's kind of the point of talking to the Christian. Is it says... Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Everything that clung to him, potentially everything that could have beset him, he didn't let it do that. He ran with endurance the race set before him, right? Which were, as we're talking about today, at least in part, six trials he had to go through. But that's not where the text ends here. It says, Christians look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, this is the part I want to zero in on. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I believe even Eric at some point made mention of this, but I'll say it again. The joy that Jesus had set before him 
as he endured the cross and despised the shame was us was the fact that he would have an inheritance among the saints was the fact that he would create an opportunity for people to be with him and so the thing that I want to say about this is certainly that we want to not just appreciate the trials of Jesus, which I hope we all do, and maybe a little bit more having just recently reflected on this stuff, but that it convicts us to mimic Jesus's endurance. It motivates us to not just be endurant, but to also consider the witnesses that have shown us the way forward. Right? Abraham taught us what it is to endure. Right? Moses taught us what it is to endure. You go through the list in Hebrews 11, and that's what he says we have a cloud of witnesses. But that Jesus showed us that. And not only did Jesus show us that, but he showed us that the joy before him was that we would be able to do the same thing. Right? Like He was the perfecter of faith, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12. And so if you or me are going to have faith, when we look at the trials of Jesus, we say, that's how I deal with mess. That's how I deal with injustice. That's how I deal with pain, is I consider Jesus having gone through this. And I consider how he did it out of his love or the best interest of the people around him. And so in this text, there's some other things that James read for us out of Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Well, certainly the trials were not the only time that happened, but if you look just at the trials, every trial was hostile. Right? And so one of the things that I want us to think about today as part of the application is our meditation on these truths from God's word and through history. Um, are considering for us the hostility we might bear up under oftentimes the temptation for us when we experience the injustices of life if you're going to phrase it that way like when people mistreat us or lie about us right or when they don't give us a fair shot at something or a fair representation or they are just out to get us right or they like take up our life and our time like jesus is dragged all night to these like just un like terrible things sometimes the common response to this is to run away from god like how could god let stuff like this happen how could god be real if this is happening to me or my friends or my family or how could how could i draw close to god when i'm going through this even if it's just a logistical thing like this is taking up my brain space and so i can't be close to god going through this kind of stuff Whatever the reasons are, those are common responses to injustices and trials, right? But I would suggest to you that because Jesus went through these things, we should actually like respond by getting closer to God. Because God knows what it is to be treated unfairly. He knows what it is to be misrepresented and have people lie about you. Like he subjected himself to all of that. So instead of running away from God for those reasons, you should run to him because he understands. He gets it. He didn't want people to do that to him, but from sinners he endured hostility. And he didn't have to. He could have stayed in heaven and just kind of looked at it from afar and just said, yeah, that's messed up. That's not how I wanted it, but stinks for you guys. You got to deal with that. He said, no, I'm going to come down. 
I'm never going to sin. I'll endure it to show you what perfect faith is to complete faith because I know that I have a joy set before me if I do that. And that's that people will be able to draw close to me. Right? James tells us that. Draw near to God and guess what he does? He draws near to you. So think about that. Jesus went through all this stuff. He, he had people lie about him, Luke 23, but so that we could know what's true. Right? He had people forsake him, Matthew 26 and 27, so that we wouldn't be forsaken, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 9. He was troubled, as John chapter 12 says when he's praying, he's troubled, uh, so that you could have peace that passes understanding. Philippians 4, 7. Uh, he was despised. Of Isaiah 53, 3 uses that language. So that we could be esteemed. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. We're lifted into heavenly places. Right? You could go through like all these like reversals or opposites. And you could list a bunch more than that. But Jesus endured hostility from sinners for the joy set before him. So that all that stuff that he went through, we could have the better end of. That doesn't mean we won't experience hostility. It doesn't mean we won't experience people lying about us or mistreating us or misrepresenting us or whatever. But in the ultimate sense, we join those, those witnesses or that cloud of witnesses, right? Um, and now we have a joy set before us. Just as Jesus had a joy set before him, because he did that, we have a joy set before us that we will be with him. Right? And so... If anyone this afternoon uh, struggle, has struggled to actually endure, has maybe run away from God in some sense, instead of running to him, this is your time to think about that, to pray about that. And if you certainly want prayers from us as a group, let me know. Let someone that you're comfortable with know so that we can pray for you. And certainly if you've never obeyed the gospel, if you've never been a child of God, like never chosen to be obedient, you've never chosen to be baptized and forgiven of your sins, whatever the case may be in that, like, then just know that that's the first step in a long race, right? Something that we have to do to begin enduring is to be obedient, is to be made like Christ. And so whatever your needs may be today, I'd ask you to consider that while we, while we sing this song.